Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Scott Simpson is the National Party spokesperson on environment, climate change and RMA reform. He's also the MP for Coromandel, has been since 2011 and previously held roles in business and in corporates, including, but not really corporate, but very interesting, the CEO of Make-A-Wish New Zealand, which is a foundation Mm. uh, which you're going to tell us about, Scott. So um, anyway... Welcome to this climate business. Thanks very much, Vincent, and um, I'm pleased you remembered my Make-A-Wish Association because it was a fantastic job doing wonderful things, and literally I was a professional wish granter, which was kind of a cool job. Now you're a politician, so they're kind of similar. Well, let's start with you because I think it's probably fair to say that not many people have heard of Scott Simpson, so who is he? Yeah, well, Scott Simpson's a uh, a guy that has been interested in politics literally since my teenage years. I've uh, I got I got involved in the National Party. Um, my parents were living in what was then the very marginal first past the post seat of Eden uh, in Mount Eden, uh, and uh, there was Wasn't a, guy- a safe seat. You you would have thought. No, well, it, it was, was a, a safe seat, well, it, no, it was a marginal seat. It was an incredibly marginal seat. And back in those first past the post days. Um, marginal seats were the sort of the deciders of election outcomes mm. and it was usually only about half a dozen electorates that actually usually decided the outcome of a general election. MMP of course has fixed all that but in those days it was very very marginal and there was a guy called Ozzy Malcolm, uh, my parents were uh, uh, marginally involved with his campaign or what have you I got involved, I got excited by um, the addictive drug that is politics <laughs> and I've been hooked for the rest of my life. Um, well Ozzy was a great guy, you know he was a, a Bon vivant, and um, I, I interviewed him many times as a journalist on immigration mm. matters, and yeah. you know, articulate and and funny, and uh, you know, never yeah. short of an opinion. Yeah, exactly. And fun- funnily enough, I ran into Ozzy just recently, um, sadly, at a funeral of someone who we'd both known for a long number of years. But we caught up after the funeral for a cup of coffee and a chat, and he hasn't changed. He's still <laughs> uh, a great guy, and um, you know, made a wonderful contribution to our democracy during the years that he was a cabinet minister and in in Mould- Cabinet, actually. Well, let's skip to Coromandel because um, you would think that at one level, Coromandel, this is the home of Jeanette Fitzsimmons, who mm. uh, I, I assume you, you knew yeah, Jeanette. Absolutely, knew, knew Jeanette well. And, um, and you know, traditionally sort of the home of mm. the Greenies. And here you are wearing your blue suit and your, 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 your blue shirt representing the greeny capital of New Zealand. Well, the Coromandel undoubtedly is one of the most beautiful, I say it is the most beautiful electorates in the country. Um, but it's a seat that... It's hard uh, to compete with Mount Albert, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. But. Well, I just think it's the most beautiful electorate. I mean, I, I think that we've got beautiful beaches, lovely bush, uh, beautiful clear sky most of the time. Mm. But boy, when it rains in the Coromandel, it really rains, and we've had a bit of that just recently. But look, um, I think the thing to remember about uh, Jeanette's time as the Member of Parliament for Coromandel was that she actually was only the MP for the electorate for one three-year period. She was in Parliament um, prior to that as a list uh, MP. They were part of the alliance, you'll remember, the Greens hadn't split off. And then in 1999, the the Greens uh, set themselves up separately from the alliance 
Helen Clark was in, in government and wanted to, I think, ensure that the Greens were going to get over 5%. That wasn't certain at that stage. And so the first of the sort of the what's come to be called dirty deals was done actually in Coromandel. I think people often forget that. And effectively, Labor withdrew their candidate. Uh, Jeanette Fitzsimons won the seat by uh, less than 200 votes uh, and was MP. She got um, she lost the seat at 2002. Uh, the now Mayor of Thames Coromandel, Sandra Gowdy, won the seat. So it was never really a a secure Greens seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and subsequent boundary changes have meant that um, although the name remains the same, the geography's changed a wee bit, and it's certainly these days considered to be you know a reasonably secure National Party seat. So it pushes all the way down towards Caddy Caddy, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it currently it currently includes Caddy Caddy, uh, um, but uh, soon to, as a result of boundary changes, go further south down to Amokaroa uh, and down to part of uh, well just north of the Tipuna stream. Now that's practically, well literally a suburb of Tauranga. Right. So it's, it's a big area but it also includes the Auckland side of the Firth of Thames Vincent, you wouldn't know where the Red Fox Tavern was at Maramarua I'm sure. Uh, but i I do you, not. You, I'm sure you don't know where the Red Fox Tavern is, but that is part of the electorate. And then all that Auckland side, Miranda, Kaiawa, part of Pukorokoro, that's part of the electorate. The Hauraki Plains, Ngāti Apairoa, uh, currently Te Aroha. Uh, so it's a big, diverse, lovely electorate, lots of different communities, lots of different opportunities and challenges, and it's, a, it's an absolute privilege and uh, an honour to represent the good people of Coromandel in our parliament. Well, that's great to hear, and... The role that you occupy now as Shadow Cabinet Minister for Climate Change, um, RMA Reform and also Environment, how long have you held that Um, I was um, briefly towards the end of the last national government, the Associate Minister for the Environment. Um, I had the same delegations that Eugenie Sage currently has, but it was for a short period of time, essentially looking after waste, waste minimisation and issues of that sort. Um, And uh, I was also uh, briefly Minister of Statistics and Associate Immigration Minister. So that was at the end of the John Key Bill English administration, uh, a great opportunity and and, and roles that I just revelled in. And then after the election and when Winston made his decision to go with the current government um, I I took over the environment uh, role from my colleague and friend Nick Smith uh, and climate change I've uh, more recently taken over from Todd Muller when he he used to be our climate change spokesperson Mm. Um, and in terms of RMA reform uh, that's been an interest of course of mine um, um, intimately connected with environment because the RMA of course is our primary environmental statute but uh, mm. until recently Judith Collins was our RMA reform spokesperson so there have been a few changes in the National Party and uh, so I've picked up that RMA but and actually I think that's quite good because it sort of completes the circle of climate change and environment. And it's certainly hot, we're going to come back to RMA sure. stuff uh, later on but I just want to put to you that um, you are in a difficult position because National has dragged its feet on climate change for the last decade and that must put you in a difficult position. I mean, you just think about the things that you have opposed as a group, the EV fee bait scheme, which was uh, put forward by the Greens and was knocked backed by, um, well, by the opposition, but also yeah. by their friends. But that, but that and, assumes, and Vincent, that the, the fee bait scheme is the best way to encourage EV take-up. Now, uh, before we started this podcast, uh, we were talking I, about that. I want to 
trying to uh, run through my list of things okay, you've done but, wrong. But, but I just, yeah, we'll I just don't think that that's a good one to start with. Because oh, right. um, we're, we're, far more. M- we're far more into uh, carrots than we are sticks. And okay. the fee bait scheme is essentially a, a, a stick to beat people with. And it's not a, necessarily an effective policy. Well, the, the other things that you have opposed, um, you know, the, what you call the fart tax. So, you know, you've resisted seeing the agricultural community uh, industries really brought into the ETS. Um, still love roads. I think you've been a strong advocate for um, mm. uh, the roading project that roads is now, roads are now back on the agenda. Efficient roads are really important to uh, us meeting our carbon reduction uh, goals. I mean, we, we are going so? to... Well, because... Um, uh, by the time we get to 2050, we're still going to be, unless there is some radical change in the way humans uh, move around uh, countryside, we're still going to need light vehicles of some sort. They're still going to need to travel on roads. If we have efficient, uh, good, open highways, uh, hopefully they'll all be low emission or zero emission vehicles, uh, like the EVs we've been talking about. Um, and uh, a good roading network is still going to be important, as is a good uh, rail network. We, you know, we're going to need uh, to trade with the world continuously. That means that the trading ports of Auckland, Tauranga, Northland, uh, and other parts of the country need to be connected. Well, let's go back to and the, the roads. Are the best way to do that. Ro- we do need roads. No, no one disagrees with that. I don't think. But I, I, the emphasis on roads to continue with. Um, internal combustion vehicles, that seems like a toxic combination. Mm. Why did you oppose the fee-bait scheme that would really kick-start the shift towards low-emission vehicles? Because we think there are better ways to encourage the take-up of lower-emission vehicles. Um, And punishing uh, people uh, unnecessarily, I don't think is the best way to do it. Because that's effectively what a fee-bait scheme is. It's it's not an incentive, it's a punishment. Um, And we take the view in the National Party that the best way to incentivise people to make positive change in a whole range of areas, policy areas, is actually by incentives rather than uh, by punitive uh, punishments. Uh, They typically... In some jurisdictions they have been applied, but they don't, uh, I, my experience is, is that uh, incentives are better than that. And um, look forward to shortly quite a, a strong announcement about low emissions, zero emissions and EVs uh, from the National Party. Because uh, it's an be- area where the government, for instance, the current government has been uh, unable to do almost anything. They, it's been a complete failure, Absolutely. the fee-bait scheme. To be fair, no, the no, no. Their, their, their whole um, scheme to low, to encourage low emission vehicles has been a complete failure. Not just the fee bait, everything. They have they've effectively ended their term in office with exactly the same policy positions that we had when we left office. Uh, there hasn't been any change at all. And and in the EV community, I think there's a high level of frustration at the lack of ability of this government to make any progress at all. What is the alternative to a fee bait? And you say it's not an incentive, it is an incentive. It takes from one type of consumer, a consumer who's buying a high emissions vehicle, effectively taxing them in some sort of kind of import tariff. And that's the problem, it's a tax. Yeah, yeah, but there's a second part to this, right? So it's shifting that then to someone who is incentivised to buy a low emissions vehicle by lowering the price. So they call it fiscally neutral, and it actually got quite a big tick from a wide range of interests, including the car importers, which uh, was, to me, very interesting. 
So why would you oppose something that even the industry would want? Well, some in the industry wanted. Uh, there were plenty in the industry that didn't want it. But look, um, as I say, we take a view that actually the technology is moving so quickly, so fast. I mean, um, I'm an EV driver myself, uh, and it seems very clear to me that uh, in literally a handful uh, of years, uh, the technology is going to be such that there will be price uh, parity essentially with ICE vehicles, I think that's not far, not, not far away. I am far more in favour, as is the National Party, of actually putting in place some practical things that I think that the EV community would want um, to see done. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me is that um, if we look at other other jurisdictions, uh, for instance, look at what they're doing in the UK and in Europe, for instance, about uh, providing um, uh, parking facilities, uh, places where it's easy for EV and low emission vehicles to get a benefit by being there and you make it more difficult for an ICE vehicle. Um, simple things like having um, a, a blue number plate, for instance, or a green number plate. I think those are uh, a good, sensible, pragmatic uh, policies that could possibly be instituted. But there are there are a whole range of them. I'm just not convinced that um, uh, a punitive measure is necessarily the best way to incentivise. What happened with the fee-bait scheme was that you had enormous pushback from people who are yet to see the light on EVs. And actually, uh, frankly, that whole debate uh, put back the, um, I think, the positive acceptance of EVs uh, probably several years. How so? Um, well, because what happened was that uh, people who may have been considering EVs simply didn't buy them. They thought they were going to get some kind of incentive, so they stopped buying. Um, uh, purchases of EVs uh, are at relatively low numbers. Um, we wanted to get them much higher, and, and so far there's been a, there's been a real delay or a real slowing down of uptake. Now, some of that, I suspect, is a little bit to do with um, supply constraints internationally, but we've we've got a uh, uh, we're one of the few countries in the world that allows the importation of secondhand vehicles, so we've got a lot of leafs around. But um, as more and more um, secondhand vehicles come mm -hmm. onto the international market, there's plenty of them around. They're becoming cheaper and more available. So you're not going to commit today to what National Party is going to do to this policy that you've hinted at? No, I'm not going to because um, as much as you've got a wonderful podcast, um, <laughs> uh, I think we'll leave that probably to our leader to announce that that decision. Um, but we've got an election coming up in 50-something days. Uh, expect a lot right, so Expect a lot of policy over the next little while. You heard it here first, but not really. Um, hmm. Tell us about getting people out of cars because you know we know as much as getting people into low emissions cars, actually the, the highest priority is getting people out of cars. And yet you continue to invest in roads mm. as an incentive really for people to remain in their private little metal boxes. So how are you going to get people out of cars or you know, for a start, are you committed to that idea of public transport? Uh, absolutely. I mean, public transport is very, very important. But i just come back to my electorate of the Coromandel, for instance. There is no public transport. So there will continue to be, in rural and provincial New Zealand, a need for little metal boxes uh, that shift people around, uh, that shift people, products and, and provide services. Um, in our urban environments, of course, uh, public transport uh, is a, a great option. More investment needs to be made, but it needs to be sensible and pragmatic investment. I saw an, actually an article which I thought was, um, I'm old enough to remember trolley buses in Auckland. Uh, surely you're not, Vincent, but I am. You really and are ancient. Aren't you? Very ancient. <laughs> but I can remember trolley buses as a kid and being quite excited uh, 
buy them. And I saw an article just recently, actually, on an, on an EV um, uh, social media page about uh, the potential for what are essentially um, trolleybus truck type uh, arrangements that that you have uh, vehicles uh, driving along a road but uh, a cable above it with electricity and instead of it being a bus it's effectively a truck or a van or whatever. Now, So there are all kinds of interesting options. And all kinds but what are you actually going to commit to because this, this issue is now in front of us right and we, we have a government that has made commitments, not stuck to them, not but, delivered it, on them. but has made commitments and we do have, for instance in Auckland, the um, uh, the Auckland um, Transport, jeez, um, what's the other A in it? The a- ATAP. A- 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 yeah, uh, yes, uh, yeah. I'm not an Aucklander these <laughs> days, so I'm not familiar well, with it, but I know, I, don't, I know roughly what you mean. But, you know, the, the issues are now in front of us, right? Yep. So so just talking about pie in the sky, it would be nice to have some trolley buses. What, what are you actually well, going to do? Well, um, you have to finish the, the projects that were um, commenced uh, uh, and started and planned for years ago that haven't been finished. Um, look, uh, um, that's a question really uh, you should address to our transport spokesman because I'm not across that detail, to be honest, and I'm not an Aucklander. But the, the, the point I'm making is that, is that public transport is very desirable, very useful, very helpful in lowering our carbon emissions to achieving our objectives uh, under the Paris and also the now the zero carbon legislation it's part of the jigsaw part of the mix for sure it's always and we don't re- and we don't resolve on that um, in your electorate um, the only way really to get to Auckland is to drive um, have you shown any interest or uh, ex- you know, any commitment to electrifying rail and improving the rail experience? There's no, there's no rail in my electorate either. <laughs> so a, again, um, uh, it's a it's a matter of oh, sorry, there is rail. We have the um, the in Coromandel Town, we have the uh, the little railway that was started by uh, Barry. Brickle years ago, which is a very nice little railway. Um, it's not going to get us very far. No, but it's a great tourist attraction and people should come and visit it. <laughs> um, but getting to Tauranga is obviously going to be increasingly important, yeah. right? So um, what are your views on the uh, golden triangle of Hamilton, Tauranga, Auckland, um, connected by fast rail? It's something that the Greens mm. have proposed and as a, as a serious mm. possibility where would the national stand on that? Well, we made a big announcement only a couple of weeks ago, a $31 billion investment in uh, roading and rail infrastructure over a 20-year sort of time frame. So this is, you know, over a course of multiple terms of a parliament. Um, and part of that was that interconnectivity in that golden triangle between Whangarei, Auckland, Hamilton and Tauranga. Um, the uh, I'm I'm not an expert in this area by any means, but I'm told that the lifespan of the current Kaimai Tunnel rail tunnel is coming towards the end of its useful life, and that a new uh, rail tunnel will need to be built uh, relatively soon on the horizon. And it makes perfect sense to me. Why wouldn't you put a vehicle tunnel through there at the at the same time? And I know that. Um, uh, you're not a great fan of uh, roads and th- uh, those sorts of things, but uh, just look at the difference that the Waterview Tunnel has made to Auckland's and Aucklanders' ability to move uh, far less, um, uh, well, well, far faster and less frustratingly around around this city. Um, I came from the airport this morning through that tunnel and just, you know, constantly surprised at how easy it is now to get to your part of town. Uh, I want to talk about your new leader. Mm. Um, 
In some ways, the, the Nats had made quite good progress on climate change. You supported the Carbon Zero Act. Uh, there was a major shift in folk in policy, but also an attitude towards uh, agricultural emissions under Todd Muller. Um, and uh, Simon Bridges committed the um, party to, um, Paris. Uh, uh, to the Paris Agreements. It, it's going backwards under Judith Collins. Here is... Uh, a leader last, uh, a politician last year who potentially was going to cross the floor to vote against um, the climate, um, uh, the Carbon Zero Act, but also has, you know, she's been very dismissive of the, the climate strikes by, by kids and um, she actually wrote this in an essay, short essay on Facebook last year, the likely impacts of climate change are being hugely overstated by the media and the political, political left. So I guess I want Put it to you, and do you agree with that statement? And how is you as climate change spokesperson, um, do you feel like you've got, she's got your back? uh, The thing to remember, I think, about uh, politics and and political parties is that uh, parties like the National Party are are a broad church. What actually happened in the end is that Judith did vote uh, for the zero carbon legislation, uh, and she supported it. And and I actually take some pride in the fact that uh, Todd Muller, myself and others, were able to bring um, the National Party to a point where we were able to uh, bring consensus uh, into the Parliament and a broad agreement on the direction of travel in terms of climate change. I don't think any any uh, New Zealander should underestimate how important that was. Um, I had the good fortune uh, a couple of years ago to go with the Environment Parliament's Environment Select Committee to the UK. We went to London and also to Brussels to have a look at how their legislative climate uh, f- uh, framework worked. And as you'll know, our model is based very much on, on, on the UK model. One of the things that uh, impressed me enormously at that time was the fact that 10 years ago, the House of Commons in the UK was able to have uh, a consensus. I think out of the, is it six or 700 MPs they have in the House of Commons, there were only six or seven MPs that actually voted against it. That was quite remarkable. And I came back, as did a couple of my colleagues, with a very clear view that that if we could attain that, that level of consensus in the New Zealand Parliament, then that would be a, a great thing to do. And just remember also that it was the National Party's Blue-Green Group, uh, of which I am co-chair, that um, before uh, the change of government back in John Key's time brought out to New Zealand the chair of the British Climate Committee, Lord Debham, um, and and we hosted his visit to New Zealand. We uh, had an opportunity for him to do a tour around the countryside talking to academics, to media, to stakeholders uh, and basically selling New Zealand on the UK model. And during the course of the progress of our own legislation, uh, we, I think, played a pivotal role. And so why is this so important? Well, it's really important because now New Zealanders, I think, can have confidence and faith that the broad direction of travel on climate change reduction or climate change and uh, uh, our, our goal of achieving zero carbon and our Paris commitments is set in place. Um, what it means is that when there is a change of government, which inevitably there will be sooner or later because all governments are temporary, what it means is that New Zealanders, businesses, councils, individuals, stakeholders can rely with confidence on the fact that the direction of travel is cast and set. Now, we as politicians and political parties 
reserve the right, I think rightly so, to argue the detail. Um, and the example I use, Vincent, is this broad consensus in the New Zealand Parliament and has been for, for, for a very long time that we should, for instance, have a taxpayer-funded access for all education uh, system. But we argue the detail. We argue about how, how, how much the teachers should be paid, what should be in the curriculum, um, uh, where the schools should be, all that sort of stuff. Similarly, we have the same position with health. We, we all agree, with the possible exception of um, David Seymour maybe, that, uh, that there should be a taxpayer-funded access for all health system. Um, we argue the detail. So, and I so think that's how it should be. I understand that, and, and, and that is great. And it was a great achievement. To have such bipartisan commitment to passing of that act, it was a uh, actually a much unheralded um, moment. I think well, it in, actually in, passed. In it, it passed without dissent. Yeah. Um, uh, David Seymour. No. Well, no. It, it, the, the, the the Hansard. The record shows that it was passed without dissent. David Seymour didn't turn up for the vote. His vote against wasn't recorded. Well, let's not so, give him any more oxygen. What but would you, but what would you, I actually think that's really important. I think that's yeah. important for the history of New Zealand. I yeah. think it's important for the future of New Zealand. What would you change, though, in the Act? You, you do talk about the details. Yeah, there are, several, there are several things that we want to change. We've made that very clear. Uh, we made that clear in the, in the process. And look, without going with, I just off the top of my head, there are a couple of things. One of them is, is that we would include in the purpose statement of the legislation uh, the same words that appear in the Paris Agreement, which make um, the, the uh, legislation uh, such that uh, food production uh, should not be sacrificed uh, in terms of uh, a carbon reduction. So that's really important for our agricultural sector. We are an agricultural based economy and in a post-COVID world, it's going to be our primary producers that are actually going to be leading the chart, the economic recovery. So this recovery. Is, it has so that's implications important. for how you would count methane and how you. Well, that, would well, that was another part. Well, that was a, that was another one. We we said in the uh, that what, one of the things that we wanted was the the commission to provide advice about what the methane target should be because currently in the legislation we've got this range which is you know, not not a very precise uh, way of doing things. So, interestingly enough, since the passing of the legislation, that's exactly what James Shaw has asked. So he's adopted our position, he's gone to the Commission and said, well, now give us some advice. Um, that's actually what the Commission's designed to do uh, because politicians are, aren't the experts. We're not, we're not the people with the, the data, the information, the knowledge. Uh, and politicians, uh, no matter what they might say, uh, in terms of them thinking they're the experts, they aren't. Uh, that's why the beauty of setting up an independent, science-based uh, commission of the sort that we now have to give government of the day, of whatever political hue, advice on what needs to be done to achieve the, the targets that we want to get to. That's why that's so important. So under Judith Collins' leadership, you're saying that the Nats would follow the advice of the Commission? Well, the great thing about the Commission is is that that's what it does. It gives gives advice. So, um, of, of course, I mean, it would be, it would be very... Um, Bizarre, I think, of a of any government not to actually take on board the advice of of a commission. The legislation, however, makes it very clear that Parliament remains sovereign. So the actual final decisions uh, about policy implementation are the decision of the of the government of the day. And again, I think that's as it should be. I mean, I, you know, in a 
a Westminster parliamentary democracy like we have, I don't think you could have a policy making entity other than than our parliament. Sure. So okay. I, you know, so I think that's fair. Yep. Um, I want to put some rapid fire questions to you. Uh, you're allowed more than yes or no, oh, but largely generous. I want a yes or no response. Okay, well, let's try. Uh, and these have come and from... The politicians are notoriously bad for that. Yes, yes-ish, no-ish. No, uh, be as, as precise as you can. I'll try. Um, do you support amendments to the bill? These come from my uh, massive Twitter following of um, four people. Um, does does he support... So I put the questions, you know, what shall I ask um, Scott? Does he support amendments to the building code to align climate change and adaptation and mitigation goals in the whatever replaces the RMA? Yes. Um, in fact, we already have uh, quite a bit of that. The Building Act already uh, makes some quite good um, changes in terms of, you know, relatively recent changes in that, reg- that regard. Could we go further? I think yes. Will you allow fracking and mining on conservation land? Uh, our position has always been that that should be on a case-by-case basis. Um, much of the conservation estate is um, what's referred to as stewardship land, and to be blunt, some of it's pretty scrubby. Um, but look, if I had my way in the beautiful Coromandel, we'd have a national park, uh, and that wouldn't be occurring in the Coromandel. But there are parts of the country. For instance, um, uh, dock needs sometimes to get gravel, um, and uh, the proposal put forward by the Green Party that they haven't been able to uh, uh, implement in government uh, would preclude that. I just just think that's a bit bizarre. Do you support the current National Party policy repealing a ban on new oil and gas exploration? Why? Well, because it makes sense. Um, Gas is uh, without doubt a transition energy source. Um, We are in the bizarre situation of having... um, been warned just recently, just in the last couple of weeks, that we are likely to uh, have to start importing gas from overseas. I I would much prefer that we had uh, our own uh, uh, resources uh, explored and used uh, rather than necessarily importing uh, fuels, even if they are transition fuels, from less emissions friendly or less environmentally friendly jurisdictions. Why wouldn't you um, just... I say just, why wouldn't you invest in more renewables so that the uh, whatever is dependent on gas is able to access it without having to import? Well, the two are not mutually exclu- exclusive, but I don't think it's like flicking on a light switch. I don't think it is a transition process. Um, I mean, in years to come, we probably won't be using, uh, well, we almost certainly won't be using gas. But uh, in the meantime, for the next little period of time, we probably will have to. Now, that's just a reality because this transition will take, you know, we're talking decades. We're not talking, uh, as I say, flicking a light switch. Do you have a point of view on TY Point? Uh, let's say it does go ahead and close down, there's excess electricity. What would you do with that excess hydro? Yeah, well, there are there are a number of options. Um, uh, people are talking about a whole range of things. I'm not uh, an, an electricity engineer, uh, but I understand that, for instance, if you just wanted to uh, move the electricity, for instance, to the North Island where the major population um, is located, that re- would require some quite expensive transmission infrastructure to be built. Um, there are some options. I know that people are thinking about um, potential for uh, hydrogen, y- using that uh, electricity to generate hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, look, there are a range of options. I think, um, if you'll pardon the pun, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge before that decision's finally made. Um, but lots to explore, and, and, and lots of optimistic options to explore. 
Uh, do you support the latest commitment by Auckland Council to halve its emissions by 2030? This has been expressed in the Auckland Climate Action Plan that was passed last week. Yes, of course. Um, and, th- and that's one of the that's one of the benefits of our legislation that we now have in place. And if I can just hark back, I'm sorry this is not a yes or no answer, but it's important to under uh, for us all, I think, to to realise what a change has occurred since the passing of the ledge. Um, We've gone now from a debate, a public debate, a political debate about whether we should have legislation, what the target should be, what the time frame should be, all that sort of stuff. That's now done and dusted. And now the conversation is turning towards how do we achieve it. And so councils, businesses, corporates, citizens, stakeholders... Uh, and and in increasing numbers every day are saying, well, this is what we're committing to, this is what we're doing in our business, this is our plan, this is how we're going to get there. That's wonderful, that's exciting, and I'm just um, overwhelmed by the pace of change in the corporate world, for instance, of businesses that are signing up and saying, okay, here's our here's our plan. I think that's a very important um, change in focus. So we've now got gone from the sort of the academic what should we do stage to how should we do it. And I think that's really important. I just want to come back to your electorate because, as you say, it's very big. So you'd be representing a really wide variety of um, urban, provincial, rural. Just thinking about your the rural constituents, the farming constituents, what's the mood on the ground there regarding the Carbon Zero Act, the shift to a low emissions economy. Mm. Is there still resistance or are you finding actually that um, people are on board as, I, as you I, I ta- so optimistically yeah, yeah, as well? I, I think every day, as every day passes, more and more are on board. And, and to some degree, it's a, a, and I'm generalising, but sometimes it's a generational issue. Uh, I find that many farmers understand the role that they have to play in terms of their environmental obligations, the, the fact that they are but temporary custodians and stewards of the land that they farm uh, today, as, as, as we all are temporary custodians of our environment. Um, I, I think there's a much better, broad understanding of, of uh, the, the direction of travel and, and what we all have to do as individuals and as communities and, and as groups. Um, can I just uh, can I get a little measure I, I kind of use is that when I first came into Parliament in 2011, uh, when matters of climate change were raised uh, publicly, I would be inundated with emails and um, even uh, good old-fashioned snail mail letter letters from people who were essentially deniers. Um, the, 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 the level of correspondence I receive these days from um, outright deniers is, is, is minimal. I'll probably get a whole lot more now, but but the, it, but but it's but it's reducing, and I just think, look, that's not a scientific approach, but it's just a just an obs- a casual mm. observation mm. as a, poli- a retail politician in the system for the, the last um, few years. I think I think that people's understanding, I think the mood of the nation, I think the mood of the world, I think it's changed and 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 quite quickly. Let's just um, we'll give you a soapbox to finish, but let's say we are aiming for halving our emissions by 2030, zero emissions by 2050. Let's say you're committed to that. What's the best way to get there? What is the how that you think is the best way of delivering that outcome? Um, it's it's actually not a physical how. It's a it's a mental. It's an emotional how. And I think the best thing to do is to encourage people uh, to make individual change to make 
change that affects them um, in an optimistic, positive way so that they can see the, the, the benefits. And that is happening at a very rapid rate. I think many, many people are sort of on board. The vast majority of New Zealanders, I think, get it and understand it. Um, and that's why it's been so important that we effectively depoliticise the climate change debate. Scott Simpson, it's a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Vincent. I appreciate it. Good. And we're done. Hopefully all right. Sweet. Thank very, you very much. Very good, very uh, articulate and um, and good fun. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, it's funny, uh, I, I, and I, I understand the reasons, but I just don't think it's fair to characterise the, the National Party as being um, laggards uh, because actually we, you know, we committed to Paris, we um, ratified Paris, we moved heaven and earth to get across on the zero carbon stuff um, and I think that's, you know, I just think that's really, really important. I think you did and um, maybe this is even worth just since we're still recording but um, your involvement in that as co-leader of the Blue Greens, I'm interested in unpacking that connection actually okay. between the Blue Greens and the shift in policy that yeah. that we saw. So the, the National Party's Blue Green um, uh policy advisory group has been going for more than 20 years. Nick Smith and Simon Upton, the current uh, parliamentary commissioner for the environment, started it more than 20 years ago. Um, and at that time it was considered pretty fringe, but these days um, it's it's the National Party's most active policy advisory group. And tell us about it. It's, a, it's an interesting collection and, and quite bipartisan. In fact, yeah. it's sort of multi-party yeah. um, events that you put yeah, on. Yeah, so we have um, an annual forum each year. Um, we move that around the countryside. But at those at those get-togethers, we typically have more than 100 people, 150, 120, that sort of number each year. And they come from all walks of life. We've had politicians from other parties. We have stakeholders. Um, and, it's a, and it's a policy discussion advisory group. Uh, it's been a really important part of, I think, the the National Party's policy initiative over over a long period of time. Um, what was the what was its role, or what was your role in in shifting? Really, when well, in that last period of the of the the, the key English government, yeah. it, it seemed to me there was a shift in thinking. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know, I'd like to think I had I played some small part in that. I was one of a handful of uh, National Party MPs that joined an organisation that was. Um, being organised and led in, in our parliament by um, uh, Ken Graham, uh, Dr Kennedy Graham, a former Green MP. Uh, Kennedy uh, was chair of an organ- a parliamentary group called GLOBE. That's uh, an international body of parliamentarians around the world who are interested in climate issues. And uh, we were able to, as uh, uh, in, the, in the last parliament, prepare a report, fund and organise and prepare a report that was presented by Vivid Economics out of London um, that was basically, uh, it set forward several scenarios for a path to a zero carbon New Zealand. And that was that was a really critical development. It laid the groundwork for a bipartisan, cross-party parliamentary uh, initiative to... Uh, the forerunner of what was the zero carbon legislation. So that w- I think that was really crucial uh, and I've got a huge regard and respect for Kennedy Graham and, it, and I think it proves what many New Zealanders don't often see is that actually behind the scenes uh, parliamentarians can work together, can work collaboratively to achieve um, outcomes. The ultimate result of that 
vivid report was that there was a special parliamentary debate. It was a very rare thing and Parliament debated the vivid report. That was that was a fundamental, crucial step. This was when? Oh, that was um, uh, towards the end of the last government. Um, uh, I think Bill English had become Prime Minister by that stage. I'd have to go back and check the exact dates. But there was a special, it was, it was a historic uh, one-off parliamentary debate. And as I say, that led the... Um, the foundation or the pathway to where we've got to today with the with the zero carbon legislation, and also a shift in thinking within the party itself. Uh, I, I, I think it's part of a part of a, a, a transition. Thanks for listening to this climate business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.